This research gives us a lot of hope that even when there are adverse childhood experiences happening, there are things that we can be putting in our family and community to buffer kids, to enable them to succeed and to thrive, even when difficult things are happening. Welcome to Holding the Fort Abroad, the podcast for expats with traveling partners. My name is Rhoda Bangeter. I'm a certified coach and the author of the book, Holding the Fort Abroad. In this podcast, I interview men and women who live abroad and have traveling partners so that we can all benefit from their wisdom and experience. I also invite relationship experts to apply their expertise to this topic. Today, my guest is Tanya Crossman. Tanya is the Director of Research and Education Services at TCK Training. She's researcher extraordinaire into third culture kids, that is children who live cross-culturally and move as children. In this episode, I want to go through the positive and negative childhood experiences for third culture kids that I think will be super useful also for children who have a parent away. We'll also cover transitions. We're generally going to be talking about Tanya's research and then applying it to uh, families where one of the partners is away, either frequent business traveler or a work traveler or um, living in another country. So I'm really super excited to have this conversation with Tanya. Thank you so much for being on this podcast, Tanya. Thanks so much for having me. I love the work that you're doing and I'm so glad to be a part of things today. Thank you so much. So let's just dive in because you've been doing a lot of research in the last couple of years. <laughs> Yes. which has come out. It's really super useful on TCK training. I think people can access that research. Um, and you've interviewed adults who were third culture kid. Oh, I think you, you're never, ever, never third culture kid, right? Right. Once you are a third culture kid, you always are. Then you become an adult third culture kid. But that's correct. And you've sort of asked them what kind of ex negative experiences they've had in their childhood and using the adverse childhood experience framework and then you've looked at what can be introduced and what's actually helpful that can sort of counterbalance that does that summarize it completely co correctly and then i want to sort of bring that into uh families that that have frequent travel yeah i mean you've you've given us a pretty good scope right there the survey we did in 2021 we had uh 2000 adults who had grown up with global childhood mobility as part of their story. We used the question framework from the Adverse Childhood Experiences questionnaire so that we use the exact same question framing so we could compare our results to studies that have been done in multiple countries around the world. So in our second white paper, we actually included one-to-one -one comparisons with surveys done in the US, England, Wales, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Philippines, and Australia. Uh, so you can see what these results look like compared to these other regions of the world using the exact same question framing. Comparing to children who didn't move, right? Yeah, in different parts of the world, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not just one country. Usually we use the CDC Kaiser study in the US as our sort of um, control uh, sample to compare against because that's the largest survey that's been done to date in the world with 17,000 participants who were a little bit older on average than our participants because it was done a little while ago. But yeah, it makes a pretty good comparison when you've got that that many people in a in a survey. So we weren't asking them, were you abused? Were you neglected? We asked questions about, did you experience this thing, this concrete specific thing? Did this happen to you? So they weren't being asked sort of subjective questions. Uh, this question framing that's being used around the world 
um, these questions that have been carefully <laughs> organized over time to try to get a more objective sense of what's actually happening in childhood. The reason we wanted to use this is one, there's been a lot of research done around the ACEs over the last 20 years, but also there's been research into, as you, as you talked about, the positive childhood experiences and how these create a buffering effect. So some researchers went, well, okay, we know that these adverse childhood experiences are linked to negative outcomes in adulthood, but what about people who have all these adverse childhood experiences, but still have a positive adult experience. What what creates that buffering so that it's, because it's not a one-to-one, -one. it raises the risk, but it's not, if these things happen, you by definition will have a terrible adulthood. It does, that's not how that works. What helps children to overcome these adverse childhood experiences? And what they discovered were these positive childhood experiences that counteract the experiences of, of adversity. And so what was fascinating is that most of these positive childhood experiences are things that we would generally consider quite normal, what should be part of childhood. So I felt safe and protected at home. You know, I, I felt that my parents heard me, listened to me, that I, my emotions mattered. I had two adults who were not my parents who invested in me, who mentored me. I felt a sense of belonging in high school. I had supportive peers my same developmental age. I participated in community traditions and I was, I felt belonging in a community, like a multi-generational community, things like that. And so what it does is that this research gives us a lot of hope that even when there are adverse childhood experiences happening, there are things that we can be putting in our family and community to buffer kids, to enable them to succeed and to thrive, even when difficult things are happening. So for example, if you had six or seven of these positive childhood experiences in place, like if, if this whole framework was happening, the risk of developing depression as an adult, if you had had a significant number of adverse experiences, the risk that you would develop depression as an adult dropped 72%. Yeah, that's huge. If you had supportive peers, even if you had all these difficult things happen, your your risk of negative ad outcomes in adulthood dropped 20%. Yeah. So you only need like one or two. You don't need the whole gamut. You need, even if you have a few of the positive childhood experiences, you have less of a risk. Basically, yeah, every single one of them makes an impact. And when you get the whole lot in, mm. you see these big drops. Yeah, yeah. And so what we like to do at TCK Training is to educate parents, caregivers, teachers, anyone who has this community uh, space around globally mobile families, how can we be doing this? Because often these things might happen more naturally and just automatically when we live in a more globally sedentary lifestyle, <laughs> when we geographically are stable. But when we're moving around, it takes a bit more work to feel constantly part of a community, to feel consistently that I've got adults who are you know, investing in my kids' lives, to feel that I'm participating in these community traditions when I'm moving every year or two, things like that. And mm -hmm. so when we recognize that these things are really important and we then put intentional effort into them, these small things add up to really beneficial um, impacts for our kids long-term. And I think for me, like, I've been working with TCKs and globally mobile families for getting close to 20 years now. 
I made a big shift in my career about seven, eight years in when I realized that so many of the parents of the teenagers I'd been working with were feeling a lot of guilt, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress around parenting and around the decisions they were making. They were unsure if they had made the wrong choice, if the choices that made were going to be bad for their kids long term. They didn't have a picture of what the future would look like for their kids. They didn't have a model of how this looked long term. And I'm sitting there going, well, I've been working with kids for, you know, nearly 10 years and I know that how this has looked for them and there's a way forward. There's a bunch of literature that you're not aware of. I mean, far less then than there is now. Uh, and it really led to writing my, my first book because I realized that often all we need for hope is to realize that there is a way forward, that we're not just grasping in the dark on our own and that it, the decisions we're making, we can be putting good things in place. Yes. Right? yes. That, yeah. that our kid's future doesn't succeed or fail on one choice that we make as a parent yeah and that's why i wanted to you know bring you on and 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 talk about this this framework and i think it's a lot to take in if if you've Mm. never sort of come across them the 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 aces and the the positive childhood experiences so i hopefully I, i can put the you know in the show notes put the the frame the two frameworks and there's also a quiz yes. that people can take so they can see yeah. how much um adverse childhood experiences they've had they've been exposed to uh, during their childhood because it is a lot and, and people might want to pause this conversation go and have a look and then come back because yeah. then it might make more sense because it is a lot to take in well, um, I can break it down fairly simply for people who want to just have a general idea of what we're talking about mm-hmm. there are 10 factors mm-hmm. in the in the adverse childhood experiences Half of those are about abuse and neglect. So what we call child maltreatment, things that happen directly to a child. And the other half are called household dysfunction. So what's happening within the home that the child's growing up in that can have a negative impact on them. So within child maltreatment, we have physical and emotional abuse and physical and emotional neglect happening at home. So how are the parents and the adults in the home treating the child at home? And then we also have sexual abuse of any kind in the home, out of the home before the age of 18. On many of these, TCKs rated higher, they had higher levels of abuse and neglect than other populations, especially the emotional abuse and the emotional neglect. And again, we didn't ask them were you abused or neglected, we asked if particular things had happened. In household dysfunction, however, most TCKs, their numbers were much lower than we saw in other Mm. countries' environments. The only one that was higher was household adult mental illness, which means there was an adult living in my home who had had depression, mental illness, or attempted suicide while I was a child living in the home. That's an interesting indicator. And in in various ways, when we break it down by different sectors, different ages, things, the, the lines that sort of correspond with each other are the emotional abuse, emotional neglect, and the household adult mental illness. So what we see when we look at these numbers are loving parents creating a good home environment who are themselves struggling. Yeah, yeah. So parents who are stressed, who are depressed, and who do not have the emotional resources to meet their kids' emotional needs. Yeah, and one of the best things you can do for your kids is to take out, look after your own mental health, right? Maybe Absolutely. break generate like I'm getting emotional, but breaking generational trauma, breaking generation. And it, but it's so interesting that it's parents who are moving around. Does that mean that they're mm-hmm. experiencing potentially more mental health problems than someone who isn't moving around? 
Yeah, there was actually a, a study done in 2011, 2012. I think it was done in 2011, published in 2012 by the Truman Group. And what they did is they studied a group of workers uh, in the same conditions, different positions, but the same conditions who were living in their home country and who were living abroad. Yeah. Same questionnaires, same stuff. And through that survey, they discovered that the international, the expat workers had two and a half times the rate of anxiety and depression. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's. And and those of us who've lived this lifestyle, it makes sense. Yeah. We are under greater strain. Yeah. Living in transition. So change is is that line in the sand when we go from I live here to I live there. But transition is this process where we, we're looking ahead to a change and then we're adapting to a new normal. Yeah. And during that stage of transition where things are unfamiliar, our literal brain chemistry is is working against us, right? Because the brain is is set up in such a way that when something is unfamiliar, it, go, it flags it as unfamiliar stimuli. Is this something we need to be worried about? Mm. Uh, do I need to be concerned about this different flavor? Is it poison? Do I need to be concerned about that smell? Is something wrong? Do I need to be concerned about this thing that I'm looking at? Is that danger? Yeah. And that's great if your house is burning down and the smell of smoke wakes you up, or if your child cries in the night and it wakes you up, that's a really great use of that. But when you've moved to a new place or moved back to an old place and the different sounds at night stop you sleeping yeah, or the different smell in your house just makes you feel on edge constantly, it's way less helpful. Yeah. And so... In transition, we're constantly under yes, stress before we've done anything. Absolutely. And then you're worried about, you know, am I doing this right? Am I making a fool of myself? Am I, how? And, and it's like literally every single day. And it's the minute you leave your house. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got this <laughs> constant underlying stress. And then we try to push through and do all the things. And then we don't get enough sleep. And lack of sleep is through various yeah. types of research connected with depression. When your sleep is down, you are much high, higher risk of depression. Yeah. And getting enough sleep is connected with people uh, being able to, you know, fix their depressive episodes. Like if you're not sleeping, you're you're not going to get well. It's, it's probably also, you know, you have a higher risk of burnout if you don't sleep properly because all your body gets oh, yeah, dysregulated. Because our brains need yeah. sleep to, yeah. to reset. But you can see all of these stresses are why it makes yeah. sense that there would be a higher rate of depression and anxiety. So we were not yeah. surprised when we, we ran these numbers and 39% of third culture mm. kids said that, and, and higher in the younger generations, it was, it was above 40% when you went to those in the millennial and Gen Z, uh, said that an adult living in their home had depression yeah. or mental illness. Um, when we got up to, yeah, Gen Z, uh, some of them were getting up closer to 50% in some sectors because... It makes sense when we know that the risk is so much higher in the expat population yeah. already. Like existing research was telling us, but yeah, it was it was nineteen percent in the US, which was higher than most other countries, and thirty nine percent in that's our survey. A, that's a lot. But but the other thing to keep in mind is the starting place of the the oldest TCKs in our surveys, those born before nineteen sixty, it was already a third of them. Hmm. So that's already that was already higher than they were seeing in the US. Yeah. It's interesting that, that like on the list of ch adverse childhood experiences, there wasn't like moving every two years or, um, yes. you know, what we would expect, like saying goodbyes to friends all the time. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's something that we as parents and sort of as sort of uh, lay people in TCK <laughs> work, yeah. um, we sort of say, oh, you know, there's all this packaging that comes with moving as a family that must be the the negative you know the adverse childhood effects yeah. but it's there there is there was something you found about the moving but not well, i mean mm. you're not wrong we we agree with you we mm. thought these things were really hard but they weren't in the ace questionnaire so we added questions about things to our survey that right. weren't part of the ace questionnaire and mobility if you had extreme mobility, so moving like if you lived in 10 or more locations or 15 or more houses before the age of 18, TCKs in general had a one in five risk um, of having these high, a high risk ACE score. So one in five had a high risk ACE score compared to um, a bit more than one in 10 in the US. It was one in five TCKs. Including the additional questions? No, just the normal questions. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was one in five. Okay. Mm-hmm. So straight up comparison is almost double mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in the TCKs. When we looked at just those who had had extreme mobility, one in three, yeah, a high risk A score. Yeah, this is why it's so important to know about the positive childhood experiences. Yes, we're currently putting together a new survey that we're going to launch later this year, where we're going to instead of relying on other research that's been done, we're going to be asking about both the adverse and positive childhood experiences and about adulthood strengths and adulthood struggles and look at, okay, well, what's actually happening in the TCK population? Mm -hmm. We know what the risk is in other populations. What's the actual risk in TCKs? Mm -hmm. So when they have had this much mobility, well, how does that connect to mental health risks or physical health risks or strengths in adulthood? So hopefully next year we're going to have some more strong results on that. Yeah, I feel like if a TCK or cross-cultural kid for that matter, uh, potentially, you know, who hasn't had a lot of moves but who still grew up cross-culturally, I feel like the the, the identity bit is huge. If, if you don't get stuck on that, somehow I feel like you can move forward. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if that comes into the the positive childhood experiences, how if you can create your identity. It's why it's difficult. We're using a framework that wasn't designed for mobility, which is why we've mm, we used okay. that and then asked a bunch of other questions as well. And honestly, when we put this survey together, we didn't realize how huge it was going to get. We we were looking for, you know, five to eight hundred responses and got two thousand. So we're putting this new survey together and we're, I mean, my aim is 5,000 responses for the new survey, um, which is going to be more thorough and hopefully arranged in such a way it's not too difficult to answer because it is, <laughs> there are a lot of questions and we're trying to arrange them in such a way that it's not, you know, too difficult to answer because we started doing this because the research didn't exist. As in the data, real data, like quantitative and... There was no data on... There was stuff about TCKs, there was stuff yeah. about ACEs, there was no- nothing about the overlap. There was stuff about prevention science, but not yeah. about TCKs and prevention science. And so what we're trying to do is to bring these two worlds together. We want to be able to leverage research that has been, yeah. that has a really strong history. You know, we have 10, 20 years worth of research that is strong and solid looking at all of these different issues. There is really good um, research that's been done on mobility within a country and that impact on kids. And they have, and there are definite signs of 
the negative impacts that that mobility yeah. has just when it's domestic mobility. And so we want to start trying to compare yeah. this group to that research, to, to build on research that's been yeah. done and broaden in it the TCK globally, community. right? It's just amazing. I just, I mean, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I love the yeah. work you do and I'm not the only one, right? It's just, it's just bringing so much clarity. <laughs> and I think, so for, for, for families where one of the partners travels a lot, so it could be commuting Monday to Friday, coming back on the weekends mm. or away for a couple of weeks at a time or irregular travel or living yep. in another country. Okay. There is that difference between living in the home country and your partner's going, traveling, et cetera. There are challenges there. But then a lot of expat families and people who live globally have that on top, right? So, you know, you're South African, yes. but and you're maybe you're both South African, but you're living in Ireland and your partner travels to China, right? That is just a very, yeah. it happens. I mean, this is a big part of my story as a kid. My, my dad worked for IBM my entire childhood and a good part of my adulthood. My dad was frequently gone one, two, three weeks at a time. I don't know if he ever did more than three weeks when I was a kid. He may have It was done. normal, I, right? It was it's just what, normal. Yeah. He was away a lot. I don't even know all the places he went because yeah. as a kid, his dad was away. It didn't really matter where. Um, in the yeah. era of no sm yeah. smartphones, no internet, he was just gone. He might call yeah. mum after we went to bed. Yeah. Like yeah. depending on what time zone he was in. And that was about it. Like there's a story we have of the first long trip he did when I was about one and a half, not quite two. Um, Cause it was definitely before my sister was born. The day that he was coming back, he'd been gone two or three weeks. The day he was coming back, I spent the entire afternoon at the front windows where I could see the driveway to wait for him to come home. Cause I'd been asking all week if today was the day Aww. dad came home. He was coming home today. And I spent the whole afternoon waiting at the window I see the car come in. I race to the back door to yeah. like the gate because there was a there was a stairwell, a stair down to the garage. So I had to wait at the at the kid the baby gate. And as soon as he came up the stairs and he broke into a smile <laughs> seeing me, I put my hands on my hips with a little like grumpy <laughs> face, and I turned around and walked off and refused to speak to him oh, or look at him my all word. night long. <laughs> it was like punishing him for being away. And my mom is trying to console my poor dad. Like she was actually really excited you were coming back. She's like, I promise. You know what? Actually, you probably felt safe to be able to express exactly. that you were not yeah. happy that you'd that he'd gone. You know, and that's probably a good sign that you felt you could do that. And and then when I was thirteen, we moved to the states. And we were there for a couple of years. Um, you know, all as, as an Australian family, and he was gone constantly. Yeah. Like he was in Canada. He was in the UK. He was in Belgium. Yeah. You know. Um, and the only rule was that he had to bring chocolate back every mm. time because we could not stand the American mm. chocolate. Uh, one time he came back without chocolate and, like, we all we all cold-shouldered him for a week for not bringing his chocolate. Um, but, you, but did you feel like you grew up without a dad, though? Or you feel very much that... I really didn't. That's and this is interesting. what's interesting. I love that. I, I forget how much he was gone because... When he was home, he was home. I love that. Now, he and we were lucky. This was before the internet, mm -hmm. a lot of his travel. Mm -hmm. um, when we went to the States, the internet was just really starting. Mm -hmm. we, we had our first internet-connected computer in that house, and we were always ahead of the yep. curve because he was in tech and, and had been since computers were yeah. punch cards. And so when he was home, he could be home because he, he wasn't taking calls. He wasn't... 
you know, he was home. Yeah. Well, even without the internet, the he could have been gone, you know, golfing or whatever. But he obviously yeah, made the true. decision that, to be that's home. That's true. No, he, when he was home, he was home. Yeah. And did he know about what was going on? Like, if he came home after a trip, like, he knew, like, any, like, things were changing or he'd catch up pretty quick? That's a good question. I don't remember him being out of the loop in maybe more than a, like, you know, just Temporary. silly dad kind oh, of yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, okay. It wasn't something that stood out yeah. to me, certainly, because yeah, when he was here, he was yeah. here, and he was and involved he was in the invested. family. He was always a, he was always a daddy's girl, daddy. Yeah, you see, <laughs> he had three daughters, yeah, and he was like all that's in. That's what I love. When when mum was pregnant with my younger sister, everyone would ask him if he was like excited to have a son this time. He's like, oh no, I really want another daughter. Oh. <laughs> I know how to do daughters. Don't don't make me change now. Um, that's so. But it, I mean, but it's the last two years of the real travel lifestyle. He was he was genuinely never home yeah. um, because just the way the, the work was set up he he was it was rare that he was yeah. home and that time it really did we did feel the mm -hmm. difference we felt the disconnect between our parents um, felt the disconnect between him and our lives and what was going on mm -hmm. and it was in the internet era mm -hmm. so when he was home he would still be working he had frequent um, two a like once a week. He had a two a.m. business call because mm -hmm. it was with people on the other side of the world, mm -hmm. and because of where his study was in the house, we'd all wake up at two in the morning because we heard the call start, and then we'd usually fall back to sleep because we got used to it. Because um, it was the day of the week he was most likely to be home. <laughs> um, he'd often be home two days a week, yeah. um, but then one week a month he was gone, and one month a quarter he was gone. Like so, he just yeah he wasn't home. And it, it made a huge difference. And over time, it's been interesting listening to, talking to my sisters. It impacted them a lot more than me because as the oldest, I'd had my dad mm. for the first 15 years, 16 years of my life. And they mm -hmm. hadn't. Like my younger sister was 11 yeah. when, that start, when that season started. Yeah. So she, from age 11 to 13, yeah. 14, yeah. didn't have a yeah. dad, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's completely different for her than it was yeah. for me. And she felt she felt like he wasn't. He wasn't. She felt it very differently yeah. than I yeah. did. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. Same dad, just different ages and maybe different stages of life. Yeah. So there are no studies, I don't think, like longitudinal studies or anything to see how that affects long term. Does do the are there for like a parent who's away, not the primary caregiver, but potentially one of the parents i think as long as it's a primary caregiver like you were showing me a study well, earlier can you the, the the study that we were talking about the limits of parental separation chart it's really talking about when you are separated from a parent whichever parent it is your mm -hmm. attachment to that parent is impacted right and so for me so the chart that we're talking about for those listening in is from a book called High Risk, Children Without a Conscience. It was published in 1989 and it was looking at adults mm -hmm. who had big issues and they, they were using these adults to look back on what was missing in childhood and what they discovered was attachment issues mm -hmm. from having separation from their parents. And they used this to start looking at what a, they created a chart of the, what they called the limits of parental mm -hmm. separation. So what's the preferable limit? And what's the acceptable limit and the harmful limit mm -hmm. for various ages of children um, from, you know, mm -hmm. under one year all the way up to age 18. And this is where I think it's interesting when you look at the age differences, right? Kids in the same household, same dad 
but at different ages, the limits are different by different ages. So I was over 14. The acceptable limit at over 14 to be separated from a parent is nine weeks. Yeah. I never went nine weeks without seeing my dad and having time with my dad. Mm -hmm. Right. So I never hit that limit. For for someone who's nine years old, it's four weeks. My sister definitely went four weeks at nine years old. But parental separation, we're talking parental physical separation or parental um, emotional separation because like if... We have to we have to remember this was done in, in the 80s pre-internet mm. and the, to my knowledge has not been redone in the internet era to see if what difference online connection can make. Yeah. So I, I can't speak to that as far as I know there's no research doing that, but it's all about when we have that separation it's affecting attachment so if we're finding ways that we can really connect and attach in a way that creates attachment over our online ways i i assume that it would interrupt that yeah i think there's two ways of looking at this right there's the way where well some parents have gone a whole year maybe two yes you know um military but also some humanitarian staff who sometimes are local staff and they don't get the same r&r even if their family isn't living in this in the country because of you know war or whatever (laughs) they're gonna start maybe freaking out i think i think if they can sort of find either break it down and find ways to reconnect so maybe meet in a country in the middle or, you know, having this intention, I think that is where it's important to sort of... In- the intentionality, I think, yeah. is always the point. Now, there are cases where we cannot get around this. I have absolutely gone outside these harmful limits myself as a child. Yeah. Um, at under one year, I was outside that harmful limit. At one to two years, I was outside that harmful limit yeah. um, on at least one occasion. Yeah. At three to five years, I'm pretty sure I hit that harmful limit. Yeah. You know, and I have a really close relationship with my dad, yeah. who I had that limit with. I actually had that, I broke that limit under one year with both of my parents. Um, so I'm not saying that breaking this one time is the end of the world. I'm not saying that this is is a guideline mm. to help us understand the impact that time apart has on a child's attachment. Yeah. Now I just had a conversation this week with someone who was in the military for 20 years and pulled out because they could not get the help they needed for their child who was suffering from severe separation anxiety Mm -hmm. from a deployment when she was six Mm -hmm. right so i think we have to understand that sometimes this stuff is happening yeah and not all kids are as overtly emotional and as you said feel safe enough to say it um in the moment and so sometimes the impact of the separation isn't obvious until later until adulthood maybe even huh yeah and so recognizing that these limits impact attachment and then being intentional about doing something about that is really important yeah yeah and i think it ties back in very nicely to the positive childhood experiences again right it's saying okay this is gonna be the situation and um we're going to be separated geographically for however much time so let's Mm -hmm. intentionally put in as many positive childhood experiences as we can yes booster ourselves as well like work on our own mental health because it's a huge stress it it does 
um, put us in situations that we cannot compare ourselves with other families who aren't living that. Um, and so I think that's where I wanted, you know, to, to have a look at these positive childhood experiences, because I think if we, yes, working on attachment with the parents that that's a way, being intentional, looking at, you know, maybe smell, leave them leaving something with you and things like that, or working on, on that, that connection that's regular and, and to feel that they're nurturing towards you. But I think also having these child positive childhood experiences where other adults are feeding yes. into you and investing into you yes. and um, you feel safe, you feel that you're heard, you feel that you can express it in your way. I think it's so precious, so precious for these families. What I love to talk about is the feeling safe mm. at home because it's one that I find is a place that children and parents often don't see eye to eye on that we can have a situation that parents think is really safe and children feel unsafe very interesting at the same That's time a good point because the children's perception of safety is different to the parents perception of safety now you're smiling and nodding so i think this is something that you've recognized as well in your your journeys for sure i think it's a good point because we just plod on and think no i'm smiling because i'm going oh probably i've been uh, caught out on this one where i <laughs> thought it was fine and and my kids are probably thinking i'm not going to tell her you know so yes i'm going to go back and double check this one <laughs> the number of times i've had tck's tell me that you know, my mom or my dad is like my super close friend. I tell them everything except the really negative ah. stuff because I don't want them to feel guilty because <laughs> I love my international life. And if I tell them the stuff I'm sad about, then they'll feel guilty for moving us. And I'm really, I like that they moved us. But Interesting. Like, so, so what makes a child feel safe? What have you discovered? Yeah, well, so in this case, we're talking about feeling physically safe in their mm -hmm. home. Something that's come up a lot in conversations I've had and, and work I've done with families is when you're in an environment where you've got like, you know, barbed wire covered walls around you and complexes and guards and boom gates and locks and chains, all this kind of stuff. And the parents feel much less safe in that kind of environment where you need all these protections. And then they move somewhere else where they've got a beautiful gated community and no walls and nice open streets and yards. And the parents are like, oh, finally, I feel safe. And their kid, meanwhile, is having the opposite experience. Because a child who has grown up with all these safety measures in place, see, that is what makes me feel safe. And then they go to this beautiful, open, green space and they feel really unsheltered and unprotected because for them, safety was, I had a guard at my gate to let people in or out and I don't have a guard anymore. Anyone could just walk in. That's so interesting. There's no wall around my complex. There's no wall around my house. Anyone could come in. Yeah. And so you often have this situation where kids and parents, because of the environment they grew up in, because of where they grew up, their idea of what's normal and what safety looks like is completely different. And so parents don't think to have that conversation in what the parent considers a safe environment. Yeah. So you there's the two emotional safety there's the two safeties, emotional safety and feeling yeah. physically safe. And I think it it just it comes again to it's a good reminder i should say that <laughs> we forget our kids have a completely different experience to how we grew up yeah right and that's why i like to bring this one up because a lot of people just would never cross their minds that their kid might not feel safe in what is an inherently statistically safe place yeah. because what makes them feel safe is walls yeah. and so i really like to suggest to parents every time you go to a new place 
even if that's a hotel room, even if it's temporary accommodation, whenever you are living in a house, just having a really quick, it could be one minute conversation with your kids saying, I want to let you know we're, we're staying here because it's a really safe place for us. Let me show you what's safe about this place. Here there's locks on these doors or these windows. Mum and dad will make sure that this is all locked up um, before we go to bed every evening. Or I want to make sure, like, we're going to leave the doors unlocked during the day, but we're going to lock them during the night or whatever is safe where you are. Um, there is a, a guard in the front of the community, not on front of our door, and that's why this is safe. Or we don't need guards in this community because the crime rate is so low. Like yeah. People don't come in and break into houses in this area. Yeah. So we don't worry about that. We just do locks on doors yeah. or whatever it is yeah. where you're living. Just talk through, this is what the safety precautions are here. And and that takes a huge weight off kids because they don't have to worry yeah. about it because they know that mum and dad have it. Covered. It's very interesting because um, a lot of parents, uh, a lot of moms, when their partner is gone, they sometimes feel unsafe. I, I think it's I think it's fine to do what you need to do to make yourself feel safe. Also, so that your pa- your kids make uh, feel safe physically. As yeah. well, you know, I think that's a good, you know, I just want to kind of put that out there and say, if, if, if you are, then it, it's, 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 it's okay to then do what you need to do to make yourself feel safe as a parent and also for yes. your kids, right? That they feel safe when your partner's gone as well. Cause that's, that could, it changes yes. the, you know, where that's again, talking about transitions where, you know, when, when your partner goes, when they come back, you're in these different, um, states really because when when you're all together you're in one situation and when when the partner's gone you're in another way of living often and so um feeling safe and helping our kids to feel safe is super important um maybe a quick word on transitions because that is something that a lot of families with frequent uh, work travel and split location experience uh on a fairly you know high what's the word frequent level yeah transitions you have a new a course out we do. We do have a new course on transitions. I've really enjoyed helping put together this. It's an online self-guided course. So you do it in your own time uh, at home. There's little videos up to you know five to 15 minutes. So you don't have to sit down for two hours. So you can do a little bit at a time. We've got some reflective exercises so you can think through how does this impact me and my family. And there's some resources so you could be like oh i want to learn more about this we're like okay here you go here's some blog posts here's some books here's you know whatever you need to know but the main part of it is to break down transition into sort of pieces that we can get our heads around okay what does leaving well look like how do i prepare for a move or a change what does arriving well look like what does repatriation so moving back to a place i used to live in and especially my passport country look like what does it look like for me what does it look like for my kids for my family there's a section in there on unplanned transitions so i wasn't expecting to make this move i am not prepared <laughs> i did not get to say goodbye i'm not sure where we're going next how do i provide emotional safety for my kids in this mm-hmm. but also talking through things like what is normal during transition. I think for a lot of people, we expect ourselves to hit the ground running and be working at 100% of capacity like immediately, which is not realistic. And this goes both for when we arrive somewhere, but also when there's a big transition within the place we're living. So if I start a new job or my kid starts a new school 
or everybody we know moves away from us. That's a huge transition as well. So why, we talk a lot about the red zone and the green zone at TCK training. Um, so the red zone being where I'm in a, a not in a good place emotionally and I'm not coping. The green zone being things are, you know, calm and easy and I'm, you know, going at pretty much my normal. And so basically we expect <laughs> that when you start after a big trans, a big change, that first three months, you're probably going to be in the red zone. Your kids are going to be in the red zone. Things are not going to be normal. As long as that really difficult period is no more than three months, you don't actually, that's normal. Like you don't need to be worried about that. And then for the next three to six months, uh, three to three months or so, we'd expect it to be improved from that, but still not completely normal. Often around six months, there's a little bit of a slump where things just feel terrible again. <laughs> but generally in the six to 12 months is where we expect things to get into, okay, I feel like a person, I feel like myself, I'm, I'm reaching normal-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when we have a more realistic expectation around what transition looks like, it helps us, one, not to get stressed out when things are hard because we go, oh, yeah, this is what it's supposed, what's supposed to happen. I can be kind to myself. I can be caring to myself uh, in this season. And, and two, it helps us know, okay, this is where I do need to get help. We're, we're four or five months in and my kid is still in like complete struggle town. We need outside yeah. help because this is, this is outside of what's normal. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. We have run out of time. <laughs> I could talk to you. I could talk to you. We could keep talking all day, couldn't we? Uh, but I'll put uh, links to all the resources that we talked about. Um, people can follow you. I missed out in the introduction that you've, the author of Misunderstood, uh, of course. Uh, and I think super useful for people who have lived as TCKs, but also others to see a little bit what, what it's like, what it means. So anything you want to add as we wrap up? And how people can reach you, TCK training resources. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of the research that we've discussed, if you go to tcktraining.com slash research, it's it's all there. A lot of a lot of our statistics, all our white papers are just available for free. There's blog posts, there's white papers that's just available for you there for everyone. We want to make this available to the whole community. The transitions course we're trying to make fairly affordable, but we also have it available for an organizational price where you can just pay for the year and everyone in your organization can have it because we, we, we don't want to make this difficult to access. We want to make this affordable because we think transition is something everyone goes through, not just globally mobile families and um, having something you can refer back to. I'm like, okay, well, I didn't go through that before, but now that I'm in it, I want to revisit that. Yes. can be just a helpful Absolutely. resource on your own time. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm on all sorts of social media. Like misunderstood TCK pretty much. You type that in, you'll find me everywhere. And I would love to to hear and to support wherever you are in your journey. Super. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Tanya, for your insights and for sharing from your research and your experience to my listeners. Thank you so much, Rhoda. I hope that you found this episode encouraging and that maybe you found ideas to apply in your own situation. Please leave me a review of what you found helpful, what you would like to hear about. 
and any other comments you would like to leave. This helps other people find this podcast and it also gives me feedback. So it's very helpful. Thank you very much. And until next time. 